Welcome to the Hero Maker Podcast. I'm Andrea Shreeman, writer, director, EP, living in LA. I'm Jennifer Morrison, and I currently serve as the Commissioner of Public Safety for the state of Vermont. We are here to seek out and tell the full story of our friends who were murdered in college, Rachel Raver and Warren Fulton III. We really need to make sure that their deaths were not in vain and that every possible lesson and improvement for the system can be squeezed from the retelling of the circumstances that ultimately led to the identification of their killer. Hello, and welcome to case update number five. Hi, Andrea. Are you ready to review the new info we learned across episodes 22 through 25? Absolutely, Jen. Let's get into it. Episode 22 was a fascinating discussion with Kelly McBride from the Pointer Institute. I really enjoyed that episode. Oh, yeah. Kelly is doing amazing work with journalists and media companies to bolster their organizational commitments and update their 21st century policies, especially when it comes to coverage of violent crime. The most exciting part of that episode for me was hearing you two discuss potential improvements in violent crime coverage in real time. Specifically, I got really excited. You were talking about bringing three stakeholders, public safety, public health, and the media together immediately following a crime to improve the way that it's shared with the community. Yeah, we all have a similar goal of informing the public and strengthening community resilience. So it makes sense. And it's very exciting. I am hoping to follow up with the Pointer Institute to explore possible work we can do together If public safety, public health, and the media can pull their oars in the same direction, we're really going to be able to benefit the community instead of constantly frightening the community. Mm, I love that. In episode 25, we talked with defense attorney Joshua Ritter. He walked us through some basics around criminal defense work. We had a lively conversation, and I really respect his experience and perspective. What were your key takeaways from that episode, Shreems? Well, I certainly loved hearing you and Josh chat. Because Josh has served on both sides of the bar, he was in the DA's office for many years, and now he works as a criminal defense attorney. He seemed to have a very balanced perspective on what it takes to just move the legal system forward. Not necessarily going to trial in every case, especially when guilt is evident, and also moving things forward as a way to minimize re-traumatizing victims. Oh yeah, I loved how he brought up that in the military, as a JAG attorney, you end up serving both as a defense lawyer in some cases and as a prosecutor in other cases, which prevents lawyers from getting entrenched in their perspective of the system. That's a magic wand fix that I'm all for in our justice system. But Josh brought so much more as he helped prep us to meet with Prieto's actual defense team. That should be a good one. Mm -hmm. Looking forward to that. Both episodes 22 and 25 provided some valuable context and perspective to us and our listeners Then, sandwiched in between there, we had the privilege of speaking with two people whose lives were directly and irrevocably impacted by the horrible crimes of Alfredo Prieto. In episode 23, we spoke with our friend Rachel's older brother, Matt Raver. And in episode 24, we heard from Tony Giannuzzi's younger sister, Denise. Both have had to live now decades with the fallout of their siblings' murder. So a little bit of background will remind the audience that Both of these events were double homicides linked by DNA to the same killer, but they happened on opposite ends of the country. Warren and Rachel's event occurred in Reston, Virginia, a suburb of Washington, D.C. on December 4th, 1988. 
Tony Giannuzzi and Stacey Segrist were killed 17 months later on May 5th, 1990 in Rubido, California, a suburb of Los Angeles. Yes. And interestingly, both were sweetheart couples whose events involved the sexual assault of the female. There is some speculation that there were other perpetrators present during Stacey and Tony's homicide, which would likely be due to Prieto's participation in the West Coast gang known as PNS, or Pomona Northside. So Jen, this aspect of the killer's gang affiliation comes into play in all of the West Coast murders, but seems to have had less of an impact on his actions while he was operating on the East Coast. Yeah, there's a strong distinction we can draw between East and West Coast events. There's been no evidence to the contrary that Prieto acted alone in his Virginia murders, yet in all the California cases, there has been speculation or proof that he was operating with at least one or more accomplices. Accomplices is something that we haven't gotten deep into yet, but I will tell you, in my research, I have been able to come up with some of their identities and have even located one of them on what used to be known as death row in California, but is now referred to as being condemned since California doesn't execute death row prisoners anymore. Wow. That would be a very interesting interview for sure. I have reached out to prison personnel and I did find believe it or not, a personal email for that prisoner, but haven't heard back from either one. Oh, I have no doubt you'll do your best to make that happen. But back to Denise and Matt. They were both extraordinary guests who brought a courage and openness in their conversations with us that was admirable. And they also brought raw emotion. I was struck by how strong those emotions were over 30 years later. Matt shared that losing his sister to violent crime at such a young age was life-changing. He had recently graduated college himself and was in flight school in Florida when Rachel was taken from us. He talked about how at first her death completely derailed his life. He dove into her homicide investigation, traveled to Queens where her car had been ditched by the killer and plastered the neighborhood with posters. Yeah, he didn't just put posters up everywhere. He wrote personal notes to the killer on many of those posters. This is really best retold by Matt in episode 23, but he told the killer on the posters things like, we will find you, we will not rest, I will watch you die, etc. Oh yeah, yeah. And in those early years when there was little information about the killer's identity, Matt was in regular contact with the detectives. He even befriended Jim Moat, who Matt describes in detail. And he also shares that he was able to make contributions to his sister's murder investigation For example, he discovered evidence. Like on Rachel's grave less than a month after her death. Yeah, that was a very chilling story. He was a really great storyteller, and it's a great episode. One of the things I really appreciated about our conversation with Matt, he emphasized that although he was deeply involved for many years, both in the immediate investigation and during the cold case investigation, what ultimately solved the case and led to the jury sentencing Prieto to death in Virginia was science. DNA evidence, and also a lot of people doing an airtight job with their piece of the justice system. Andrea, you probably remember how minute he got as to the woman who entered the DNA. She did her job right, and therefore the rest. Chain of title. Yeah. Everybody. Yeah. Collecting the evidence, everything. Yeah. He acknowledged many hidden heroes in his episode. We also learned some specific details from Matt about Tina Jefferson's case. 
and heard more evidence from Matt that indicated Rachel had been stalked prior to her death. He also described a series of phone calls to various members of his family after her death, and Matt shared several stories from his personal experience that illuminated his commitment to finding Rachel's killer and his emotional journey of living with that loss. Yeah, I would say Matt's episode is an excellent listen for anyone who has dealt with or is dealing with the violent loss of a loved one. He was generous. He was transparent with the many emotional spaces that he's lived through, even the impact of that on his small family, you know, his wife and his kids. I agree. That episode could definitely be helpful for others. He doesn't sugarcoat the difficulties, but it does end up on a hopeful note. One of Matt's messages to other families is never give up. Yeah. Thank you, Matt. So in episode 24, we met with Denise Gianuzzi. That episode was a little bit of a departure for us. I actually drove a few hours to go meet and visit with Denise. We met in Riverside County, and the episode takes place on location as she files an official request with the sheriff's office for her brother's case file. Episode 24 was really unique, and it was an intimate episode. Honestly, I was a little jealous that you met Denise without me, (laughs) but that also probably contributed to the intimacy we heard. You and Denise had been talking for over two years, and this was the first time you met in person. I loved hearing you two talk, and you did a good thing to help her file the records request. Clearly, she has wanted to know more about her brother's death for decades. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Jen. One of the notable contrasts that we brought this up already, this gang level that was out on the West Coast, but it came out in my discussion with Denise, and it's something that wasn't present in our discussions with Rachel's brother or sister, was how many people warned Denise that pursuing answers surrounding Tony's homicide, particularly around the time of his death, would place her in danger of gang retribution. And even her own father, a former law enforcement officer, didn't want her to pursue details. Denise's dad was a sheriff's deputy for many years, and then the family owned a police uniform store. So Denise grew up surrounded by police officers. Many of those officers knew about her brother's death and warned her that it was a gruesome case. And in fact, for decades, she was advised to stay away from seeking answers. I think it was a really significant milestone that Denise was finally ready to request the case file and come face to face with the facts about her brother's death. I'm glad you were there with her and for her in the moment. I felt quite honored to be there with her. And even though they told her that it would be a few weeks before she heard anything as of today's recording, it's been more than a few weeks. <laughs> many weeks. There's still no news as to when she will receive the file or what information exactly she'll be receiving. But in contrast to Matt's full arc from agony to closure, I would say Denise is still on the road to finding peace. The way she described it, there are members of her family who were able to lay Tony's death to rest once they knew Alfredo Prieto had been executed, couldn't hurt anyone else had been held to account for his crimes. But for her, she still has so many unanswered questions and she's trusting that that case file will help bring her closure. Well, like we've discussed before, no two people respond to the sudden violent death of a loved one the same way. Denise has been on her own unique journey. One of the things she mentioned in the episode was a deep yearning to provide information to her brother's children, her nephews who grew up without a dad in their lives. At the very least, whatever information she's able to uncover, we hope will give her the ability to provide answers for her nephews. I'm not sure that's true that they didn't grow up with a dad in their lives. I think her sister-in-law is remarried, but they definitely did not grow up with their biological father. 
Yeah. And yes, I imagine being able to provide some information for them will be a great opening for their relationship and bring some comfort. She also corroborated some information we gained from Stacy's mother in episode 18 that Tony and Stacy were likely connected to Prieto and other members of PNS through moving drugs. She also shared something new that she had heard that they were killed over a small amount of money, $200, that Tony either hadn't given Prieto or owed him. That's really sad, but not surprising, given what we know about this killer's prior acts. And I do want to add that one of the ways Denise thought losing her brother at such a young age had impacted her positively is that she quickly became that person who friends and family turn to when they need straight talk and support. Interestingly, both Matt and Denise reflected that losing their siblings had the effect of causing them to grow up quickly. That's right. And Denise talked about being an anchor for her friends and her family, for being known for her street smarts. And this is important because this has been part of her healing journey. She also talked about getting herself into therapy in her 30s and using that as a space to understand and heal. Well, I was very impressed by Denise's strength and courage and appreciated learning more about her brother, Tony. She painted a much clearer picture of him than we had heard before. Yeah, thank you both to Denise and Matt for speaking with us. It's no secret that Jennifer and I have a goal of talking to at least one person who knew each victim of our friend's killer. And this segment helped us bring Tony Gianuzzi and Rachel Raver to life for our audience in a very beautiful way. We appreciate you sharing their good deeds and unique personalities, as opposed to only focusing or hearing about the few months or moments leading up to their deaths. I echo Andrea's gratitude to Denise and Matt. Your courage and experiences as survivors was touching for me to hear, and no doubt is impacting our audience as well. Thank you to everyone for being part of the Hero Maker family. And Jen, thank you for meeting me here each week to learn and grow. I'm really loving this time with you. I agree, Andrea. Thank you as well. And to everyone out there, let's all remember to stay safe. And take care of each other. Yeah. Thank you, Vicki Rose Sampson, our beloved sound mixer and editor. Thanks also to producer Michael Doherty, who distributes and markets the show. Thanks to graphic designer Junglene Bay and sound designer Andy Bill. And thanks to Andrea Schreeman. Yep, that's me thanking myself in the third person, who books, produces, and directs the show. Please subscribe to the Hero Maker podcast wherever you listen and take a moment to rate us. It really helps the podcast grow. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at the Hero Maker Pod. If you'd like to collaborate or suggest a guest, please email us at media at theheromakerpodcast.com. The Hero Maker Podcast is a production of Prudent Pictures. Thank you so much for listening. The Williamson County Cultural Arts Commission of Franklin, Tennessee, wishes to thank our men and women in blue who help us deliver safe and fun family and community cultural events year-round, including one of the only authentic bluegrass festivals in the country. Bluegrass Along the Harvest takes place every July and at the Williamson County Fair in August and at the annual Tennessee International Independent Film Festival. Check out our full calendar of events at WCCAC-TN.org.